Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 61. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I am a professor of mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Pani Anuol. I'm also a professor of mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Today, we discuss faculty searches. If you're a faculty member, then you've likely engaged a faculty search committee for a job interview, have been a member of a search committee, or if you're lucky, you've been the chair of the search committee. We're going to discuss the process starting from creating the job posting to selecting a successful candidate. So the first thing that we're gonna think about for faculty searches is what's the composition of the faculty search committee. So currently at my institution, we have a makeup of full professors, associate professors, an assistant professor, and we also have uh, a graduate student serve on the faculty search committee. And most of the time, this is dictated by the handbook or the bylaws of the particular department. What about you guys in your case? At my institution right now, it's very traditional. It's all faculty. The composition is most likely based on the search topic. So on which area they are from, because from mechanical is so broad. So typically depends on which specific area of candidate they want to search from. So most of the faculty serving on that committee will be within that area. I think one of the purposes for having experts serving on these committees is so that they can help recruiting as well. Yeah, so in my institute also it's the same based on the topic and also it has professors at different levels, but they are all mainly from our department. Later on throughout the other stage of the interviews, there are other people that they come and they participate in the evaluations, but the search committee is just mainly different ranks of faculty from the department. So maybe since we talked, I guess, about the search committee, what are the requirements? Does it require for the members of the search committee to take unconscious bias trainings? So it's recommended. I don't think we've had it mandatory, but most of the chairs of the search committee encourage the committee members to take the, the training prior to the first meeting. Same for us. We don't really have any official training per se, but our uh, new department head had spent quite a lot of time putting a document together about as a search committee member, what you need to look for and what kind of biases you need to mitigate. Yeah, it's the same for us too, but I heard that at some schools you are not allowed to uh, participate in the faculty search uh, committees unless you attend some specific workshops. So it's not just a small training that you do online training. You need to attend the full two or three day workshop that it, unconscious biases is part of the training. All right. So our next question is, what items are typically listed in a job listing? Like when you write the job post? Is it uh, better to be broad or specific in the qualifications or expertise of the candidate? Yeah, so 
some of the things that are typically listed when I've helped or assisted write the job posting is the subject matter that the person should be an expert in or should mainly lead if they took the position, the expectations for like the funding level, teaching, research, and service. Some other things that are posted in the position is some historical facts about the department, like if it's the oldest department in the college, the composition of the department, what other the strengths of the department, especially if they're they have a strong core of facilities that are listed. And then I've also seen listed some historical significance about the university. Sometimes it's a little bit of a debate on the first meeting when you write the job position about whether or not it should be broad or specific. So it's like, do you want a condensed matter physicist or do you want an electron transport theorist? Most of the time it's because the search committee don't want to miss out on a great candidate for a field that they may not have thought about that could be up and coming, that could be an up and coming field. So I think it just depends on a committee or sometimes is dictated by the administration. Maybe the administration is doing a cluster hire and they're like, we want quantum transport people. And so then in that case, you might not have the flexibility to be too broad. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, sometimes they, I guess, uh, at the college level, they want to build expertise in some specific area. So the call can be a specific. I heard that when the call is too broad, it means that the department, they don't know what they are hiring and they are looking for the best of the best. And it's like, oh, see what happens. <laughs> which makes it harder, I guess, for the candidate. But uh, yeah, but I think that uh, most of the postings that I've seen, they are more specific than, rather than being broad. What kind of uh, recruitment strategies do these committees uh, implement in order to find diverse pool of candidates or minority candidates? Yeah, for me, I typically, as a Black female physicist, I, the first thing I do is call my friends. <laughs> Find out if they have any, you know, students that are coming out of their research groups. Um, sometimes I just call to see if they know of someone. Another strategy that I typically use is I search the websites. I just go to the websites and I go to the specific department to see, you know, if there are any women in the department and where that person is in their career. If I think they might lean towards uh, moving. Other strategies I've done was recruiting at those national conferences, like the National Black Physicists Conference or NOBACHE for chemists and chemical engineers, So, or NSBE, National Society of Black Engineers. So I think those are uh, good places to start with. In one case, I even just called the president of one of those organizations and, and let them know we were having a search and if they knew anyone. So most of the time, it's personal connections um, that I use to recruit uh, diverse and minority candidates. Yeah, so in my department, we try to reach out to minority-serving institutes, like sending emails to the dean of the College of Engineering and notify them about the, the search that we have. HBCUs are usually on that list too. And also they try to advertise it among different societies, like societies of women engineers and different, I guess, diverse groups. Also, uh, social media, having a active presence in various platforms on, on social media. This for me is actually the hardest. I, it's 
sometimes I feel very clueless in finding people in the particular area. I have to be really familiar with the field or like within the field and the community that I am usually involved in in order to to go and really I feel like just blind advertising is very difficult because the pool is so small and you know these the same group of people will be approached by many, many universities. And how does yours stand out, right? So it's not just that, but also the topic has to match. And so I don't, this is for me very, very difficult. I don't know if there's a, <laughs> a better way besides doing the tool, the personal uh, relationship through your personal network and together with the community network. I, I These two, I feel like they have to all come together at the same time in order to really identify good candidates and diverse candidates. Um, but I know that some searches, sometimes when they fail to get a nice pool of diverse candidates, the head of the department or the dean might call it not go. They just say, no, you don't have enough, a good pool to keep going with the search. They will just call it off and start again next year. So how do we establish the evaluation criteria, assuming that the pool is diverse enough? Yeah, so most of the time is dictated by the, the tenure criteria. So we go right away to strong track record for research in terms of publications and whether or not they have secured external funding. We go for teaching if they have teaching evaluations or if they've done teaching as a graduate assistant or a teaching assistant and then service. Specifically, I know sometimes I look for things that are outside of the academy. So, you know, they've done things in the community. I mean, of course, it's not a requirement, but it's nice to know that they can step outside of the academy and give back to the community, whether whether it's volunteering or tutoring or anything like that. The evaluation, the committees that I have served on mostly have based their evaluation criteria on the tenure applications and what they look for. We have an evaluation criteria list that's made, and then it's typically used after the candidate had already come to interview. But within this criteria, it's yeah, similar to what Kim had already said. You evaluate their teaching potential. If they haven't done so, you based on how they interviewed and how what their background looks like, you evaluate that criteria and research, certainly based on your prior publication, based on your talk. So you evaluate the research and then service how well you're involved or engaged in your community. But one thing that I recently learned talking to a, a, a very good friend of mine, um, she's very experienced in many, many, many searches, very senior. And she said, one thing that she's looking for is nothing on paper. I mean, certainly you need to hit a certain minimum. But she said, I'm looking for whether that person fits well in the department, whether that person would work well with the faculty in the department. She said, everybody can look great on paper, but whether they would 
have a chance to fit in and to be retained and to be successful. Um, that's what she looks for. Among the stuff that we already just talked about, this is one thing that she said is the most important to her. So I felt like I said, you know what? You're right. Many people will look great on paper, but this particular criterion about how they're going to fit in, I think will be very important. Thanks for sharing what your colleague mentioned. So once they have the evaluation criteria, they checked all the boxes and you have this unwritten uh, thoughts about the, the potential candidates, whether they fit in, et cetera. How are the finalists then selected for the campus visit? Do you guys have a way that you narrow them down? Um, do you rank them? What kind of system? Is it secret? <laughs> is it a secret vote? How do you guys usually select the candidates that come to the, the campus visit? So we have the secret society <laughs> called <laughs> search committee <laughs> that they evaluate all the candidates. They rank them. Every application needs to be evaluated by multiple candidates and being evaluated by and scored by multiple members of the search committee. Then at the end, we select the top ones. There are some that they are in gray area. Some people, you know, they rank them high, some they rank them low, and then there would be discussion. And then after that, we select a couple for the uh, Zoom interview. And then after that, there are other evaluations that, you know, we talked about also their personality, you know, how they presented themselves, how did they answer the questions, how prepared they were. And, and then, then we down select for the campus interview. So it's the, the next thing once you select them is how do you organize that campus visit? I know when I was interviewing, I always felt like I was so exhausted. Why didn't they schedule a bathroom break? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, I don't get it. The, do either of you have insights into how the, the campus visit is really organized? I mean, besides lack of bathroom breaks, is there some strategic plan that is followed for a campus visit? For us, it's really following the traditional way of a typical seminar speaker schedule. So it's a fixed uh, time for the seminar, of course, and then you kind of build everything, all the meetings around it. Now, the meetings at this point, most of them are one-on-one -on -one, uh, meeting with the faculty in the department, but I actually find it very helpful and useful to do cluster type of meetings. I think they're much more meaningful in terms of getting feedback because one-on-one -on -one, sometimes you don't really get the proper interactions or proper feedback uh, when you have a cluster of people. You can group them by topic or you can group them by seniority or whatever. And then typically there's a more uh, comprehensive uh, feedback when you come from a group of people. I find that to be more useful. And for us, also, 
uh, sometime during the uh, interview, there's a search committee meeting with the candidate also, like that's a group meeting, of course, but the search committee want to kind of either as a beginning of the day or wrap up at the at the end of the day. And then there's always a build in time to meet with the department head. And then there are another time to meet with the dean. So that's our typical structure. And then kind of everything else is uh, fed in between. I totally agree with the bathroom breaks. I feel like scientists just don't know how to make time for bathroom breaks. I was going on these seminar talks and I even told people, I said, please give me five minute break in between every couple of hours just to, to, to build into it. Even with explicitly telling people that they don't do it. But of course, as an interviewee, you don't want to demand that. You just don't be shy if you need that break. Because it's not in their agenda of their campus visit, which I think it should be. So ours is uh, similar to what Lucy just described, uh, except we also, we give the candidate the opportunity to meet with the graduate students during lunchtime in one of the two-day visits. And during that time, a student, uh, they, they are supposed to make a short presentation. It's the, like a teaching, I guess. And the student, they will evaluate them in terms of the teaching and then how, uh, how nice they are, how approachable they are, how well they describe their topic. And then also we give the candidates the opportunity to request who they want to meet beside the people within the department. So they can go outside the department or they can say that I want to meet with, I don't know, so-and-so on from outside the college event, but on campus. So we'll give them the uh, the chance to give three names that they want to meet with them. And uh, we put them, if they those people are available, they can meet with them. But we do mix and match. So not, not all the meetings are one-on-one. Some of them are one-on-one. Some of them are group uh, meetings. Um, and the search... People, uh, the, I guess the search committee, they don't meet with them as a group, but they might join for dinner or breakfast. And uh, towards the end of their visit, they have a um, exit meeting or whatever you call it with the chair. And they also, they meet with the dean as well. I have a quick question. When you think back to when you were interviewing for your first uh, academic position and you met your host, did you feel like you needed to butter up to that host or connect with that host or if they introduced themselves as the chair of the search committee? Did you feel like, okay, I, I need to make them laugh or tell a funny joke? Like, Did you feel like obligated in some way to make a, a different type of impression on the host or the chair of the search committee? Not for me at all, <laughs> but there was one time I've mentioned this in another episode before I went on 14 interviews uh, during the uh, Tulane shutdown search. But one of the interviews, someone told me to do that. Yeah, so my friend invited me there to give a potential as a interview talk. And before I went, he warned me, he said, oh, this person is this and this, and you should, you should say something different. And this is what he does. And 
and I did that, it was a disaster. It went so wrong in so many ways. I've learned my lesson. I would never, I, I, I think I'm, I must have done it so unnaturally because I've never done it before in any other places. It's never occurred to me <laughs> that it would make a difference. But because I was told to do that and I did, and it was a huge mistake. I would say never do it. Never do it. We're all smart people. No need to do that to make an impression. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I think that candidates, they should be themselves. They should not try to fake something or they should feel comfortable at the end of the day. If they get, end up getting an offer, that's going to be their place. And they don't want to be this fake person. And I, I don't know. I would not be able to do it, but I've seen people, they do that. And it's, it's clear that it's not genuine. I I don't know if it would be disastrous like Lucy at the end, <laughs> but I don't think, I don't see a good ending. At the end of all of this, how do we select the successful candidate? There's typically a voting process. Uh, voted by the department, all the faculty, regardless whether whether they're involved in the search committee or not, uh, they participate. Then then they give their input sometimes, and uh, certainly they want to vote. Yeah, for us also, it's the same. The search committee they collect the feedback for each candidate independently, and then they bring their recommendation after they meet to the uh, faculty meeting, and they tell. They, they present their cases. They say, this is case one, case two, case three. This is how whoever met with them and interacted with them, including the students and then department uh, visits, if it happened, they all have a feedback and they present all of those. And then they say the search is selecting this person as number one, this person as number two, this person as number three, but that's just, they just put it out there, right? And then the whole committee, the faculty in the department, they vote based on hearing uh, what feedback they got from the search. And then they, the chair writes the recommendation to the dean. And then I don't know what happens after that. Well, I think one thing I've observed is that uh, sometimes the search committee or particular person on the search committee or even outside the committee can be so dominant in their voices, they basically can steer the whole search. Then what happens? I feel like th that could happen all the time, right? So there are always people who are louder than others and they have all the reasons to champion one candidate over others. How much can we control that? I mean, how much of that, you know, dominating factor uh, can play into these uh, final selection process? So I think for me, when I have search committees where I feel like there will be people that dominate the verbal part, I definitely go with written surveys. Even if we talk it out in a faculty meeting or in the search committee meeting. Sometimes I even, if I, like I mentioned earlier, we have a student, we might have a student on our committee. And you know, students are intimidated. This is their first time being in the, a meeting with 
faculty members and they're the only students and they really get to see, you know, how we act, right? And so sometimes it's very intimidating for them and they don't say anything at all because they're like, do I interrupt? Like, you know, and so sometimes I will call on them. And one time I, it was the the students feedback that calmed everybody down. It was like, whoa, you know, it was sort of like the the way they captured the summary of that particular candidate made everybody reflect on the comments that they were previously arguing about. But I had to call on the student to say, what are your thoughts? Like, what what's your gut about this person? You know, do you see them being in the classroom? Like, how was that exchange? And, and they nailed it. And so that was uh, feedback I don't think the search committee would have ever thought about if that student hadn't been there. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So what if the search committee failed to identify a candidate to move forward? What happens? Like, is the whole thing going to start over or are they going to find the second best? It is so tricky. I mean, there you can have a failed search. You can have a failed search and, and it has happened. And it's also happened where, you know, you go to the next person. Um, but it's, I feel like whether it's failed or you go to the next person, is strongly dependent on the search committee you have because they can justify to the dean why none of these candidates, even the second one, air quotes, is not suitable. Or they can say, well, you know, it was neck and neck. Let's go with the second best. We're not like losing, you know, we're, it's not like it's, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. So I feel like in those decisions, it the committee really does play a strong role in whether or not the search fails or not. You definitely don't want to be in a situation where it's, it's clear that the committee has sabotaged everything. Like they're not looking for good candidates. They just like whatever. So you really do have to make a strong argument if you're going to say that it's a failed search, in my experience. I always think chit chat always sometimes give you the best inputs <laughs> because there are things you don't want to write or you don't want to express, you know, in writing or through any kinds of formal uh, communications. Some people might know the candidates in some from some other means or, you know, yeah. And they might be able to share stuff that uh, they don't want to share with the entire committee or entire department. So I think these inputs, chit chat inputs are quite important as well. Well, Lucy and Panya, thank you so much for uh, engaging me on how faculty, the process for faculty searches. Overall, if taken seriously, the faculty search committee has a rather tough job. This committee is responsible for selecting the next faculty member of their department that could possibly be a lifelong colleague. Therefore, it is important to get the feedback of your peers, colleagues, including the students. Also, to ensure that you maintain trust amongst your peers, it is important for you to follow the guidelines for the faculty search process by your department, your college, and or human resources. To the candidates who apply for faculty positions, it is important to remember that you're evaluating your potential colleagues as much as they are evaluating you. So stay focused and alert. 
Nevertheless, enjoy the process because if you're a newly minted PhD on the job market for an academic position, you could potentially find some fantastic collaborators and letter writers for your tenure application. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.